This morning we are in the last three verses of the book of Philippians. Uh, we're missing a couple people this morning. I forgot to just point out, um, uh, you've noticed Pastor Curtis's name is throughout our bulletin in order of service, but you don't see him here this morning. Uh, he got an opportunity at the last minute, a church in St. Charles needed somebody to preach this morning, and uh, he, he texted me and said, hey, can, can you handle it without me? I, thought, I think so. And uh, That was a harder question to ask than normal because Laura, incidentally, is also out of town this weekend, so it was just me with the twins. And um, this morning when I was getting them ready, our dog jumped the fence. <laughs> so I'm like, she came back, but I'm like, well, you're on your own. Like, I can't go get you. So she, thankfully, she came back. So uh, we're running a little light this morning at the Holler household, but we're getting through. I'm thankful for, for you, Brother Pry, and other people that are able to step up and, and help out. Uh, this morning, this, this is the last sermon, the book of Philippians, and church has been such, such a, a joy to, to walk through this book together with you. I've been impacted and, and challenged, and uh, my thinking has has deepened, I think, and, and been sharpened, and I pray that, that that's been the same for you, that you've been enriched by this book. So today we're going to finish that out, we're going to close this book out, this little letter out, and then next week Brother Gary will be bringing the word from, from uh, one of the Psalms, that'll be our first Psalm of 2023, we're diving in together, and then after that we'll be Flipping over to the left side of the Bible to the book of Jonah. We're going to visit the book of Jonah and the Minor Prophets. This morning, to to close out this letter and to to help you just hit that save button, what I want to do is is three things. First, I want to do what I did in the very first sermon on Philippians. I want to do an overview. I think this overview will be better than that first overview, 22, 23 uh, sermons ago, mostly due to the fact that after having gone through every text and doing that work, you just have a sharper and better understanding of what each paragraph means and how all the themes fit together. And I think this morning will be a much more cogent, clear overview of the book of Philippians. The second thing I want us to do is then actually finish the book of Philippians and do those last three verses. And then thirdly, I want to answer the question, so what happens to Paul? What's the rest of the story? He's in prison. He's, he's awaiting trial. What happens to the Apostle Paul? So let's, let's pray and then dive in. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we'd ask that you would give light to your word now. Open our darkened eyes to see and to understand this little letter. Inspired for all time, breathed out by you, and written for your church and for her sanctification. So Lord, we, I pray that those areas which have been unclear in the, the previous sermons, that they'd be clear this morning. Lord, I pray for those things that we, we've missed applications and, and work to to put to work, the truth to put to work in our lives, that this morning we would grab hold of them and live in light of them. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen. Open to Philippians 
chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. And you'll notice that I'll just do a summary of really paragraph by paragraph. Verses 1 through 2. Paul opened this letter. He opens this letter to the church in Philippi with reference to his status as a servant. Paul could have drawn upon his status as an apostle, but instead he uses a word that that highlights his relationship with Christ into this church. And this role, we'll see through the rest of the book, it takes its ultimate cue from Christ Himself, which we're reminded of in the second chapter. He addresses the threefold division of the church, the flock, the saints. Those are all, that's not some special category of Christians. Those are Christians. That's the whole of the congregation. As well, the overseers, those are the elders and the deacons, the, the called and appointed servants of church, of the church. And Paul's greeting is one that that he begins with and he ends with. It's the same in all 13 of his epistles where he's a reference to this. Grace to you. Grace binds his heart to the Lord and it drips from every page and every word and every letter that he writes. Verses 3 through 11, Paul, he he wastes no time to get into thanksgiving. He thanks God for the church, for the, the partnership in the gospel. And these verses in 3 through 11, they, they tug on this golden thread that, that weaves its way throughout the whole of the book. And that's this theme of joy. Philippians is the epistle of joy. He thanks God as often as he remembers the Philippians, he makes his prayers with joy. And his yearning for this church is that they will continue to grow in faith. They will continue to abound. They will continue to, to grow in their knowledge and discernment. And that textures this letter from beginning to the end. And it reminds us that we have someone to pattern our lives after. We have a letter to pattern our lives after so that we may grow in the faith and approve what is excellent and be presented as pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day when Christ returns in church. That is the next redemptive event in all of history. Christ's return. His glorious return. Verse 12 through 14, Paul, in being in prison, he's, he's in a kind of house arrest. He's awaiting trial. And it would be, be easy for him and for the Philippians to think that because he was on house arrest, that Paul must have messed up. That Paul was Paul's benched. Paul was put off to the sidelines. He was taken out of the game. But Paul directs their attention to the fact that his, his affliction, his loss of honor, the loss of his good name, is for the sake of Christ. And while he has been, been in prison, he has been able to witness to the guards. 24 hours a day chained to another guard, and the gospel has spread throughout the entire imperial guard. And not only this, because this is taking place, fellow Christians hear of this little revival taking place. And they're emboldened by it. They're emboldened by the fact that Paul, being in chains, is sharing the gospel. And so Paul's life here reminds us that when Christians live boldly, it emplaces strength in others and causes us to live courageously for the sake of Christ. Verse 15 through 18, some weren't emboldened though in the right way. Some, in fact, were happy to hear that Paul's imprisoned. 
And these weren't non-Christians. It was actually Christians that were happy to hear that Paul was imprisoned. They saw it as an opportunity to regain perhaps a following that they had lost when the great Apostle Paul came into town and people stopped listening to them. And so they're preaching out of selfishness, out of rivalry, out of selfish ambition. But Paul tells them, this makes no difference. It doesn't matter if in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ's name is proclaimed and that he's going to rejoice. And he does. 19 through 26, even still, while he's stuck there and others are preaching rivalry and elsewhere, Paul is confident that he will be eventually delivered. Now, he doesn't know which way he's going to be delivered. If put to death, he gets to go home to be with the Lord. And if delivered, if released, if acquitted, he gets to go on working for the church, for the Philippians. And in any, any way, it's a win-win. And that leads him to say those immortalized words that should be branded on your heart. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Verses 27 to 30, in light of that, whether we find ourselves in circumstances where we will live or die, we are ready to let our life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that will lead to suffering. It will lead to hardship when you're exposed as a Christian, when you're called out, when people take notice of it. But this, this suffering is one that is granted to the church. It is a blessing to the church. It's one that gives God praise. And to suffer for the sake of Christ is a true honor that turns the world's ideas of honor and turns it upside down. It's an unexpected way to live in Christ's kingdom. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, this second section of the chapter, in many ways it's like this central hub where you have these themes running to it and, and out from it. So many themes intersect here, and Paul encourages them to have the same mind as found in Christ Jesus, the same thoughts, the same pattern life as that of Christ. And what was that? What was the mind of Christ? It was that he humbled himself. He condescended. He came down to a disordered creation. He took on flesh and lived among fallen man. He was obedient under the law all through his life and even unto death. And this humiliation of Christ on the cross does not end there. For he was raised up. For he is highly exalted he defeats death. He pioneers salvation. And Paul, in this little letter, in those, those section of verses, gives a little picture here at the end of history of that redemptive event that's coming, the return of the Lord, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verses 12-18, how does one live in light of this glorious truth? Paul tells them, work out your salvation. Take this stuff seriously. Get in the gym. Get in the spiritual gym, Philippians. 
Work it out knowing that it is first God that works in you and changes your will for his good pleasure. Which means, when you do this, don't grumble. Don't dispute with others. Stay committed and rooted in the word. And be glad if Paul gets to continue his work. If he is sacrificed and put to death, rejoice with any saint that is put in that position to give it all away. Verses 19 to 29, Paul then, he gives three examples of three different men, three illustrations of living a life with the mind of Christ in humility. The first is Timothy. Timothy, his son. Timothy, his son in the faith, his fellow servant. Uh, Paul wants to send this young man who is gifted to preach by the laying on of hands to the Philippians. And, and he hopes that he will follow Timothy there to Philippi. The second is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has one of the best descriptions, one of the most riches descriptions following his name given by Paul. He described as a brother, a fellow worker, a soldier, and a minister of Paul's need. And his own sacrifice comes to the Philippians at almost the cost of his life. He almost died. He had one foot in the grave. And in doing so, Paul says these words about Epaphroditus, who almost died for the sake of Paul, for the sake of the church, for the sake of Christ. Honor such men. The third example Paul gives is himself. And while using himself as an example to emulate, he uses this as an opportunity to warn the Philippians of a group who, as he says, mutilate the flesh. Who were by by some kind of legalism saying that there was more than simply repenting and believing and faith in Christ to be saved. And Paul comes outright and calls them dogs. He gives them a designation of a non-believer. There is nothing, he's saying, about our works, about the strength of our flesh that could save someone. If there was anyone ever who could be saved by strength of flesh, by accolades, by their pedigree, but the things that they have suffered for the sake of Christ, it was Paul. Paul was born of the right tribe. He was circumcised in the eighth day according to the law. He was blameless under the law. He was a persecutor of the church. A Pharisee of Pharisees. And Paul is saying, guys, if I haven't arrived, then you haven't arrived either. All those gains are losses anyway. They, they mean nothing Compared to the surpassing work, worth of Christ, that surpassing worth is seen in the fact that Paul has faith that he will attain the resurrection of the dead and be raised to new life. Verses 12 through 16, and at the same time, Paul doesn't want them to sit back and think passively with kind of a, a live and let God attitude. Well, God's going to save whoever he wants, and I'm just I'm going to sit back and do nothing. No, Paul wants the Philippians to realize that because God has saved us, our good works flow from that. That's the purpose of them. Our desire is to persevere as a result of having been saved. They're a fruit of being saved. So that the only way we can make sense of making Christ our own is if Christ has first made us His own. And that's exactly what the text says. 
verses 17 to 21. So imitate me, he says to the Philippians. Watch this example. Pattern your life after me. There will be some who will oppose this. There are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are those that want to see Christians, who want to see Paul fail, but Paul reminds them that whoever these enemies are, they're unnamed, that their end is destruction. And even if they could strip anything and everything from Paul, or from you, church, or from the church in Philippi, if they could take everything, including their affluent status of being citizens of Rome, they need, to rem- they need to be reminded, they need to remember that their citizenship ultimately isn't here. It's in heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven. And whatever they do to our bodies to suffer, God will transform these lowly bodies to be like Him who has been glorified. Chapter 4, verses 1-3, through three, Paul, Paul loves this church. He's loved them since he first labored with them a decade prior to this imprisonment when he planted that church. They are, as the opening verse of chapter 4 says, they are his joy and his crown. They are ones that he labors and loves for and prays for and weeps over. And so he encourages them that because their citizenship is in heaven, because that cannot be stripped of that, stand firm thus in the Lord. And anticipating the attacks from the evil one, though the Philippians stand firm from what comes from the outside, they also need to stand firm from where sin gets a foothold within their ranks. Paul calls out two women who were fighting. Calls them out on the carpet. Iodia and Syntyche. I entreat you to get along. Stop fighting. Before the whole congregation, church discipline is brought to the floor when this letter is read. And Paul essentially says this, stay focused on the gospel. We labored together side by side in the gospel. Stay focused on that. That's what matters most. Don't lose sight of what I just said in chapter 2. To have a humility modeled after Christ. If Christ was humbled, then we ought to be humble and count others more significant than ourselves. And that's an attitude that will diffuse almost any tense situation in the church. To consider that other person more significant than yourself. Verse 4-7, through seven, In light of the Lord's soon return, let your gentleness or reasonable, reasonableness be made known to everyone. You don't want the Lord to return and Him finding, find you fighting with your brothers and sisters. So get along. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray to God, let your needs be made known to Him. And Paul reminds them that God's peace will guard their hearts. A peace that is beyond our scope of understanding. A peace that comes when the world is stacked against you. A peace that comes when you have every right to be angry and afraid. God's peace will guard your heart. Verse 8-9. Knowing the Philippians will endure persecution. He doesn't tell them to, to withdraw from the context. Get, get away from there. The people are going to treat you badly. Don't engage with the world. He actually does the opposite. He shows them how to be good kingdom citizens and good citizens of the city that they're in. And here's part of that. Is that wherever they see truth and wherever you, church, see truth, 
justice, purity, what are things that are lovely and commendable as often as they intersect their lives? Name it. Think about those things as, as often as the non-believing person, the, the non-Christian, as often as they do something that is true, that is lovely, that is just, commend it. Gently show them in that moment where their ultimate allegiance is due. Show them that they are drawing upon God's infinite wisdom. Show them that their feet are planted in God's truth and living inconsistent with that. And they need to repent and believe in the name of Christ. And the way that Paul does this is to be mimicked. It's to be replicated. The way he has taught them is to be a pattern of discipleship to follow after. Verse 10 to 13, if there is any apprehension about living in a context of persecution, Paul teaches them the secret to being content. And we, as we did that sermon a few weeks ago over this passage, this is a passage that's so often ripped out of context and used in sports events. One has nothing to do with running for president or being a Super Bowl MVP or CEO of your company. Uh, company. It has everything to, to do with being content in spite of any situation. So being content when privileges are stripped or when they're enjoyed. Being content when there's a lot of food or very little. Being content when there's abundance and when there is need. The secret is to rest in Christ who strengthens his sheep. That's the secret of being content. Verses 14 to 20, Paul, he has everything he needs. Even before this gift from the Philippians came to him, he was content. And yet their gift is a, signifies their partnership with him. In giving and in receiving, Paul continues to, uh, continues to rejoice. They gave sacrificially. And in so doing, they, they demonstrate a fruit of their faith. They gave in a way that glorifies God. And for that, Paul rejoices and God is glorified. This leads us to the final three verses, which are, are our text this morning. Chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This farewell is rich. And it'd be easy, it would have been easy just to tuck it in of last week and, and Paul says hi and move on. But there are some truths here under these stones that I want us to turn over and look at. To greet someone is, isn't something we should take for granted or simply overlook. When you greet someone, you dignify them. You humanize that person when you look them in the eye and you greet them. It's to acknowledge their dignity and worth as a person. I'm sure that we've been on both ends of this. On one hand, where that person warmly greets you. Another hand, where you walk into any context, church or building, work or whatever, and you know that person had to have seen you because they walked by you and around you so maybe out of the per- your peripheral, they know that you're there. 
And yet you feel that wall is just up, that invisible barrier. It's just ice. They won't even look at you. Not unless you were to call them out directly would they then acknowledge your presence. And it feels terrible. It feels icky. It feels cold and distant. Maybe perhaps even mean-spirited. And that's such a betrayal if we as Christians ever do that. If we as Christians do that, we're not supposed to within the body of Christ. You know, Paul said, or excuse me, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That should be quite the condemnation if we do that within our midst. Where Jesus acknowledges that within circles that we love each other, but not the outsiders. What about from within when we don't greet each other? If Jesus says that Gentiles greet each other, even these unsaved men and women, what does it say about us if we ignore our own? Is there perhaps a person in this room right now that you don't want to look in the eye? You will if you have to. But you just simply avoid. You take note where they're sitting. You go around the pew to go sit someplace else. Or when they're, they, you wait a little bit, let them get clear the door. That way, if they linger, you don't have to interact. You wait till they're busy so you can get by. If that describes any of you right now, know that you have business to do with the Lord. And if there's something deeper behind that, if there's some unreconciled sin, church, before we take the, the Lord's table this morning, Go and be reconciled to your brother and sister. And maybe, maybe, it's just a, maybe it's just a social anxiety. Maybe that's all it is. You're just scared to want to interact with somebody. Maybe it's just a little bit awkward sometimes. That's okay. This is a great place to be awkward with others and to stumble. This is a safe place to be awkward with others. On the other end of this, we felt that cold. I'm sure some of us can think of someone that has been so warm and so friendly that when they see you, they beeline it for you. They grab your hand or they hug you, they embrace you. How was your week? And before they don't jump in, they want to hear how you were. I know how it is sometimes. We say, hey, how are you? Good, fine, move on. Sometimes that's unavoidable. When you're on the way to do something, like somebody's running to the restroom, I don't really want to pause and wait for them to tell me how their week was. But when we have time to linger, we got to dare to go beyond the superficial, hey, how are you? And I'm, church, I'm sure this is a big sanctuary. This can feel like a cold and empty sanctuary if people don't want to greet each other. But this can also feel like a really small sanctuary, like a big family meeting here if people exude that warmth to want to be around each other, it can be so friendly and inviting. And that there's a good reminder here for us, just, just in this, these few little words, for how we ought to interact with visitors that come to our homes, visitors that come to our gatherings. So, greeting team, take note. I, I once heard a statistic. This was through Lifeway, Tom Rainer's research. That visitors make up their mind within two minutes of arriving at a church about whether they'll come back. 
There's a lot of reasons, but you know what foremost among those reasons were? were? How are they greeted? Or not? Did the person open the door for them and smile? Did they, did they have a name tag on so he knew this person? Like, who is this guy? I don't know. Did somebody open this, the door? They've got a scowl on their face. Did they, hey, you're, I'm so-and-so. It's nice to meet you. Uh, do you have kids? Oh, I, I can show you where you can drop your kids off. We have these Sunday school classrooms. Or just, like, you knew that. They knew you were there because you walked by. But you weren't greeted. Within two minutes, a person's already decided whether they're going to come back or not. Did anybody ask for their names or show an interest in them? Do we, do we care for the outsider when they visit? Are we spilling over with the love of Christ? Do, do people sense a warmth and want to come back, want to be with us? This greeting that Paul gives, it also has an echo of the ministry of, of Jesus' disciples in proclaiming the gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, when, when the twelve apostles are sent out, they were to enter into the homes and first greet it. Carrying the gospel message, first thing they're supposed to do, greet the home. And there, there's a subtle way in which this gospel proclamation is highly relational and it's preceded before the gospels, it's preceded by this, Hello. My name is Josh. What's yours? And Paul closes out with these greetings, and he, as he does in his writings, he, he reminds his Philippians of this relational gospel that brings people from, from all sorts of backgrounds. People who you normally wouldn't be friends with. And he points to the fact that this is Christ's church. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. That word here for every is in the singular, and that's significant. Paul isn't telling the Philippians, tell them hey for me, and then the church leaders meet, like, hey, Paul says hi. Oh, okay, cool. No, he, he's saying every last Christian in the church, every individual, tell them from me that Paul is giving them a greeting. It's believed that, that Paul dictated his letters. So, so he would say out loud what somebody else would write down. Timothy perhaps did this at time or, and others. And uh, this is why the end of the book of Philemon, it says Paul, Paul at the end of the letter would then write the farewell with his own hand. At the end of Philemon it says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Now that was a way of authenticating the letter, personalizing it. It's believed that perhaps Paul had poor vision Remember he said he, had, he was dim of seeing? Maybe it was because of the Damascus Road experience. I, I don't know. Or, or another time he says, look at look how large my letters are. In any case, they recognize Paul's handwriting. They recognize this is Paul authenticating this. And here he's giving this personal touch, this personal greeting. Well, there's something true to that today. It's, people love receiving mail. Like handwritten letters. People like that. You took the time to do that. Church, is something I, I try to do for you. I'm almost done working through the directory. It's just to sit down weekly and, and write a note to, to one or more of you through, as I go through the directory. And just know when you receive that short word of encouragement, I just spent time praying for you. Because I love for you. I want the best for you. I want your roots to go deep in the gospel. And in a similar way, that, that's what Paul's doing here.
by greeting, giving the greeting where it says, in Christ Jesus. Paul here, he gives one final nod to the doctrine of union with Christ. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they are united to him by that faith. As Ephesians says, they are raised up with him to the heavenly places because they are united with him. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because they are united with him. They are gifted with the obedience of the Son because they are united with him. To be in Christ Jesus is to be a Christian. And that means you get to enjoy the blessings of the Son of God himself. He next says, the brothers who are with me greet you. Paul's likely just speaking to the companions who are with him. At the very beginning of the book, he mentions Timothy, his son in the faith. And throughout the course of the letter, we learn that Epaphroditus was with him. Perhaps there was others. It doesn't say. But in any case, Paul draws on the language of the church family. That's one of the metaphors of the church, is the family of God. The family of God which takes Jews and Gentiles and it tears down the dividing wall of hostility and brings people together that otherwise wouldn't have been together. Who would otherwise would never be friends or family. Consider Paul, a Jew, writing to Gentiles. Paul, a Jew, writing to Christians. At one point in time, he would have killed this church. He would have killed to kill this church. He, would have, he did at one point in time hate any Christian. And here Paul rejoices, labors for, is willing to die for people he at one point in time would have persecuted. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do something like that. Now that's one of the beautiful things of this letter. And then consider how that touches the theme of unity. Paul giving one last nod to the family of God. Those two women fighting, they're to, they're to remember that they're sisters in the faith. They're the same family in church. We're to remember that too. Verse 22. All the saints greet you. All the saints greet you. Having just described that subset of Christians with him and some companions that were near to him, some that had access to him to come and go, bring provisions. Paul now mentions these other saints. And given that he was in Rome, it is safe to assume that when he says, all the saints greet you, he's saying, the church in Rome greets you. It's one church greeting to another. The church of Rome to the church in Philippi. And here at the end of the letter, we have hints of this gospel partnership associating with others for the sake of mission. And church, that's a refreshing thing to do from time to time is just to lift your head, break the bubble of our church life, and remember, you are not the only church in town. You are not the only Christian trying to live a faithful life, though it may feel like that. Remember Elijah after his great victory at Mount Carmel, runs, is depressed, is despondent, is throwing a hissy fit. Says to the Lord, I'm the last prophet. And in a tender rebuke, the Lord tells him, reminds him, there are 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. 
All the saints greet you reminds us that there are other churches we're laboring with. There are other churches within our association that have made so many of the things that we see within, just seeing this in this room possible, the banners, the new church Bibles, all this associating with others, church, I, there's so many awesome things that we can do together for the sake of mission. And we just need to remember we're not alone. We're not the only church in town. Philippi, you're not alone. There's a church who knows of you and you of them. Don't lose sight of your camaraderie in the gospel. And then what comes next in the text is really cool. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul just gave a little plug there for the mission he's been on. Uh, Here's an update on how that imprisonment's going. There are those in Caesar's household who are now Christians. That's amazing. Now this refers, this reference to the household, this is beyond a nuclear family. This would have been sort of akin to saying like President Biden's cabinet and included slaves and workers. Caesar's household, not Biden's cabinet. It included people beyond this that extended, or the immediate family, but extended family. So it doesn't necessarily mean Caesar's direct family members, but it also doesn't eliminate that either. So it's quite possible that those near Caesar that had his ear heard the gospel. And if Paul's life is any indication that this could happen, then it's very possible. Spoke before Herod, spoke before Agrippa, spoke before King Fesses and centurions, and will go to speak before Caesar. He'd been blessed many times, many places, to speak to people in high positions of authority. And perhaps it's just a matter of time before somebody close to Caesar becomes a Christian. And here we are at the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Philippians, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul began his letter with his classic signature, grace to you, and now he ends it in similar fashion. Grace that makes this letter possible. The, the gift of God that we don't deserve and the nature of God to bestow kindness upon his children. And there in three verses, Paul emphasizes the author of salvation by referring to the saints in Christ Jesus. He emphasizes the family salvation by mentioning this brotherhood. He emphasizes the mission of salvation by, by giving a plug for Caesar's household and all attached to these greetings. And lastly, he emphasizes the grace of salvation by mentioning that the person of that very gift is our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the words of Paul Harvey... What is the rest of the story? What happens to Paul? There isn't anything in the pages of the Bible within Scripture that explicitly state what happened to Paul. What we have from the the testimony of church history is that Paul was released after two years in prison. It could be that his accusers didn't show up for trial, in which case it's a it's a he's acquitted. He's let go. Charges are dropped. It could be something that Pastor Curtis pointed out to me. There was a uh, statute of limitation of two years, a waiting period, and that often within in Roman history that 
uh, if somebody was escalated through their judicial court finally to speak to Caesar, often they were political prisoners. In which case, Caesar's going to let them sit there and rot for a little bit to see if he can get land, loyalty, money out of that person. Well, Paul doesn't have anything to offer in any of that. And so it could be inferred that he's just going to release him because he doesn't really care about him. It could also be, given the background details within this letter, that the gospel continued to spread throughout the imperial guard, throughout Caesar's household, that somebody close to Caesar became a Christian and pleaded on his behalf. We don't know. It doesn't say. But the testimony of church history was that Paul was released around 62 AD. That's about eight, eight years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, Paul had expressed the desire to want to go to Spain. That was the far reaches of the Roman Empire. We have no reason to believe that he didn't make it to Spain. And he wasn't able, that he was able to plant churches there. And after his release, he had three more years of fruitful ministry before he's back at Rome visiting. When the, uh, Rome is set ablaze by Nero... Nero blames the Christians, and Paul, along with other Christians, are rounded up, they're tried, and they're executed. What an incredible life. What a wonderful letter. It rests within the biblical canon as the inspired Word of God for all time, written to the Philippians and inherited by the church and is therefore church. This is here for you. So, return to the book of Philippians again. Come back to the book of Philippians and visit its pages. Be refreshed by the Word as your roots grow deeper into the gospel of a greater understanding, a greater awareness of the truth. Be blown away that by as often as you visit, you'll find something new and that you can never plummet the depths of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the letter to the Philippians. We thank you for Paul's witness there and the things he has written down that have been recorded, which are for us now. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that has that attitude of Christ Jesus who counted himself uh, equality of God as nothing to be grasped, but coming in the form of a man was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, grow us in humility. Lord, give us an attitude and a fervor for you that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, would you grow our church in maturity? Would you grow us to pattern our lives after the Apostle Paul who patterned his life after you? That we would make disciples that make disciples that make disciples to the glory of God, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would live courageously for your glory. In your name we pray. Precious Jesus. Amen.